The destinations discussed in this episode are on the traditional lands of the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation, the Confederated Tribes of the Colville Reservation, and the Spokane, Wanapum, and Yakima peoples. Welcome aboard the Voyages Podcast. I'm John Orkut, and in this episode we're continuing our journey along the path of the giant Ice Age floods caused by the draining of Glacial Lake Missoula. We covered this ancient inland sea in our previous episode, so if you haven't listened to that yet, start there first to catch up on how the lake formed, why it emptied out time after time, and how it is that we know all this. Then, head back here and join me as we move downstream to eastern Washington to explore what happens when that much water is unleashed on a landscape. Above Roos Field, red-turfed home of the Fighting Eagles of Eastern Washington University, rises a hill with one of the most striking views in the Inland Empire. To the west, coming right up to your feet, is the Palouse. This upland was formed when silt was blown into the area along what's now the Idaho-Washington border, and deposited as a series of dune-like hills. The wind-blown origin of the Palouse means that its rolling hills are almost surreally rounded, and that they're made up mainly of loose dirt. The soils here are exceptionally rich, making this one of the world's most productive farming regions. Turn to the east, though, and you'll see a landscape that couldn't be more different from the hilly, soft, and agricultural Palouse. Beyond the town of Chini are a series of broad lowlands. Crops won't grow here. Instead, the dominant vegetation is ponderosa pine. Head down into these valleys in the vicinity of Turnbull National Wildlife Refuge, and you'll see why. There's little to no soil here, which is not a problem for dryland specialists like the Ponderosas, but a huge problem for the grains and lentils that thrive on the hills above. In another big difference from the Palouse, once you're at ground level you can see that this is a jagged landscape of basalt cliffs and elongated lakes. These lakes are all oriented in the same direction, pointing to the southwest, and some are hemmed in on either side by sheer cliffs. This kind of organization is unusual in nature, and when you see it, it's a sure sign that something strange has happened. So what did happen here that led to such different environments existing side by side? It may seem like a trivial question, one with relevance only to this one patch of land outside Spokane. But in fact, it was the asking of this question that marked a new era in the history of geology. The answer becomes clear only when you look at the landscape from an entirely different perspective than most of us are used to, and it took an uncommon mind to make this leap. That uncommon mind belonged to one J. Harlan Bretz, and in 1910, the same year J.T. Pardee quietly introduced the world to Lake Missoula, he strutted onto the geological stage amidst some appropriately melodramatic scenery. 
Jay Harlan Bretz was a Michigander who spent most of his life working at the University of Chicago, but a brief teaching stint in Seattle brought him to the Northwest early in his life, and like so many others, this most scenic corner of the continental U.S. had a lasting impact on him. He first became fascinated with the scarred and convoluted landscape he would later name the Channeled Scablands, not in the field, but in a library at the University of Washington, where he first started puzzling over the unusual landforms east of the Cascades. He became fascinated, and before long would visit in person the landscape to which he would return time and again over the course of his life. Brett certainly felt the same sense of awe as many others before and since in eastern Washington's canyons and coulees, but his interest went far deeper. He wanted to explain why these structures existed, and from fairly early on he thought he had an answer. He wasn't the first geologist to grapple with this dramatic landscape. Some of its more prominent features are impossible to ignore, regardless of whether or not you're a scientist. But the hypothesis he developed between 1910 and the 1930s was something completely new. Geology in the early 20th century was still a relatively young field, one united by the Victorian idea of uniformitarianism. The central idea of uniformitarianism is that the present is the key to the past. In other words, all the features that we can see on Earth's surface, as well as all the rocks we find here, are the result of slow, gradual processes that we can see at work around us today, playing out over immense periods of time. To give some examples from around the Northwest, the mind-bogglingly deep Hell's Canyon along the Snake River is what happens when a powerful river wears down rocks over the course of millions of years, cutting an ever-deeper gash into the ground. The Palouse, on the other hand, is the product of wind depositing silt-sized sediments one grain at a time and sculpting them into dune-like hills that in many places would later be removed by some unidentified force to form the ragged valleys of the Inland Empire. So what force was responsible for removing these soft soils from valleys across eastern Washington to create the Scablands? There were two possible uniformitarian explanations. Either they were formed by glaciers or by rivers. Remember from our last episode that glaciers leave very distinct fingerprints, both in terms of how they erode the land and what they leave behind when they melt. None of these fingerprints are present in the Scablands, so Bretz didn't find this explanation very convincing. Rivers make a lot more sense, but most of the eroded valleys in the region, including those of Turnbull National Wildlife Refuge, don't contain rivers or streams, or any indication that they ever did. The Scablands, Bretz realized, couldn't be explained by slow, steady processes of erosion. They were the product of geological processes, he reasoned, but ones that occurred so rarely that none had taken place for the entire duration of written history. He realized that a sudden release of huge amounts of water could have carved the structures still visible throughout the area in a geological instant. In much the same way that dumping a bucket of water onto a pile of sand will result in several wide, shallow channels, a flood, unlike anything the modern world had ever seen, could do the same on an almost unimaginably huge scale, carving out in a matter of days what Brett himself named the channeled scablands. His idea didn't go over well, for many reasons. To much of the geological community, the Spokane floods, as Brett initially called them, reeked of catastrophism, the debunked idea that Earth's surface had been shaped by a series of huge catastrophes, which conveniently for the religious elite that dominated European natural history into the 19th century, included the biblical flood. This attack on Bretz wasn't entirely fair, since he never suggested any kind of supernatural power was at work in the Scablands. 
only that it took more than the mundane processes of normal erosion and deposition to explain them. A second reason that Bretz made so many enemies was Bretz himself, who very much saw himself, not unreasonably, as a crusader against academic dogma. He was never one to back down from a fight, and he changed his name in order to make himself sound more imposing. J. Harlan, with the J just being a single letter, not an abbreviated first name, was apparently preferable to his given name of Harley. The third and most vexing reason that the geological community mostly disregarded his flood hypothesis, though, had nothing to do with his personality, but the lack of an explanation for where the water came from. Remember in the last episode that J.T. Pardee ran into the same issue with his Glacial Lake Missoula hypothesis, though he overcame it much more easily. Ironically, it was Pardee, the polar opposite of Brett's in almost every way, who ultimately solved this problem. In 1927, at a conference put together primarily to discredit Bretz, Pardee is said to have leaned over to the person next to him while the rest of the hall was busy ridiculing the brash young catastrophist, and said, I know where Bretz's floods came from. They came, of course, from Lake Missoula, and it was Pardee's decades-long work on the ebb and flow of Montana's inland sea and its periodic disappearances that established the Spokane floods, thereafter known as the Missoula floods, as scientific fact. But let's return to Washington now, to see the features that Bretz observed, and allowed him to come up with his heretical ideas in the first place. I try to be as exhaustive as possible when exploring a landscape and the stories it tells, giving you all as detailed a travelogue as possible. But when the Missoula floods broke through the ice dam at what is now Lake Pondere, they fanned out to cover huge swaths of land as they flowed downhill. Imagine a pentagon whose corners are the five major cities of eastern Washington. Spokane, Wenatchee, Yakima, the Tri-Cities, and Walla Walla. Almost the entire area within that shape was affected in some way by the Missoula floods. This means that I won't be able to even come close to giving a detailed list of flood-carved features. Instead, I'll introduce you to the major types of Scabland feature, and I'll encourage you all to do what I spent much of this summer doing. Hop in a car, drive around eastern Washington, and see how many different variations on these themes you can find. The most widespread features are the now-dry channels that gave the channeled Scablands its name. Turn a hose on a pile of dry sand or loose dirt, and you can get a very good idea of how these formed. Quite simply, the overwhelmingly strong currents of the gigantic floods washed away the soft sediments that covered the hard, basalt bedrock of the Columbia Plateau, and in many cases took some of that bedrock with them as well. From a historical and scientific point of view, the same wide but relatively shallow channels you can see from the hilltop at Eastern Washington University are the classic example of scabland topography. If you hike along the lakes and wetlands of Turnbull National Wildlife Refuge, you're walking parallel to the flow of one of the largest outbursts of floodwaters, which would carve out the valleys that attract so many birds and mammals to the refuge today. In fact, in the dry landscape of eastern Washington, where water is so important to survival, there are many places where valleys dredged out by the floods would later fill, at least in part, with water and become biodiversity hotspots. The most impressive example is probably the Drumheller Channels just north of the town of Othello, 
a convoluted maze of channels that is also one of the best birdwatching destinations in the Northwest. Many channels are several miles wide, and often not terribly deep, meaning that a view from a plane, or in Bretz's case, a perusal of one of his meticulously drawn maps, is really the only way to see them for what they are. As with so many things associated with the Missoula floods, their sheer size makes them hard to comprehend, and their stories hard to understand. In some cases, though, the floodwaters cut well into the bedrock itself, and here the channels, deeper and rimmed with sheer basalt palisades, are impossible to miss. These are known as coolies, and they rank as some of the greatest natural wonders in the state known for its wondrous nature. At the far western edge of the Scablands, where the erosive power of the floods and the Columbia River combined, one coulee looms especially large, and provides the best example of how the Scablands' most prominent features formed. The gigantic slash that cuts across dozens of miles of central Washington is stunning enough to have earned it the name Grand Coulee long before any geologist understood its cataclysmic birth. Any pullout along the highways that run its length is a great place to try and take in the grandeur of Grand Coulee. A favorite of mine is Lake Lenore Caves, where a trail leads you to a series of caves partway up the Coulee walls. These have been important cultural sites for regional tribes for millennia, and you can see why when you take in the eagle's eye view of the enormous gash that runs north and south from where you're standing. Below, a scoured out lake looks like a puddle compared to its surroundings. Head back downhill to its shores though, and you'll find that it's a full-fledged pond, driving home just how oversized the canyon you're standing in is. Bretz's work, though, made it clear that there's so much more to this coulee than just awe-inspiring scenery. As the most impressive remnant of the Missoula floods, the story it tells places it in the pantheon of American geological marvels alongside more famous sites like Yellowstone or the Grand Canyon. So why is it that Grand Coulee is so oversized relative to, say, the channels near Spokane where we started this episode? The answer seems to involve a second glacial lake, this one caused from another glacier, whose fingerprints you can still see all over the landscape of the Waterville Plateau to the north, dammed the main stem of the Columbia River, which formed Glacial Lake Columbia. This dam wasn't quite as watertight as the one that formed Lake Missoula, since here the river still emptied out of the lake at an outlet at its western end. The exact location of that outlet, however, changed through time as the ice grew and then melted. At first, it flowed out through Moses Coulee to the west. Only later did it begin emptying out through what would become Grand Coulee. This means that when the Missoula floods came along, the powerful but slow and steady erosion of the Columbia 
had already begun eating into the bedrock of central Washington, as opposed to much of the rest of the state, where the floodwaters spilled out on a more or less flat landscape. Their work already started by the Great River of the West. The floods didn't just blast away soft sediments, but were able to gouge far deeper into the underlying basalt. When the glacier up on the Waterville Plateau eventually melted, the river resumed its previous course, the same one it follows today, further west through Wenatchee. Grand Coulee was left high and dry, a testament to the incredible power of water to shape the landscape, paradoxically filled today mostly by sagebrush. The upper part of the canyon would become flooded again in 1949, when the Dry Falls Dam opened and filled the canyon with water pumped in from the more famous Grand Coulee Dam, which, confusingly, is not actually in the Grand Coulee, but on the Columbia, just north of it. Except for a chain of relatively small lakes, the lower Grand Coulee remains dry, making it an excellent place to see some of the smaller, but still unbelievably huge, features left behind by the Missoula floods. As you head north up Lower Grand Coulee, every turn you take presents a more spectacular view than the last, and you'd be forgiven for thinking that this visual one-upsmanship might just continue indefinitely. And then, just north of Blue Lake, you find yourself at the base of Dry Falls, and you realize that you've reached the zenith of Scabland scenery. Like Grand Coulee itself, Dry Falls is a name that at the same time is extremely descriptive and completely fails to do justice to how monumental it is. You can immediately see how it got its name. Imagine Niagara or Iguazu without any water, and you have a pretty good sense of what Dry Falls looks like. That's because waterfalls, like glaciers, carve rocks in very distinctive ways that remain long after the water has dried up. The upper parts of most waterfalls form a crescent shape as they pour over a clifftop, while the pounding waters at the base blast out a deep plunge pool. Both of these features are in evidence at Dry Falls, but what you won't see anymore is any falling water. When the ice dams were in place and the Columbia flowed through here, the falls would have been spectacular, at nearly 400 feet in height and cascading down an area over three miles wide. During the Missoula floods, though, it would have been something else entirely. Imagine the amount of water carried by all the world's rivers today. The Columbia, the Nile, the Amazon, every other body of running water on the planet. Now, Multiply that number by 10, and you're in the ballpark of how much water passed over these now arid and silent cliffs. During the floods, it would have looked less like a waterfall and more like gigantic rapids. It can be hard to wrap your head around the volume and force of the water that flowed downstream during the floods, but Dry Falls is one of the best places to try. As you stand at the viewpoint situated at about the high water mark during the floods, 
Try to imagine the vast area that stretches out below you filled with roiling water moving at highway speeds. It would be filled with fragments of the glacial dams it burst, as well as anything else, rocks, trees, mammoths, unlucky enough to be caught in its path. Try to imagine, too, what this would do to the rock beneath the falls, enlarging existing plunge pools and undermining the cliffs down which the water was cascading. Even small waterfalls erode the rocks around them like this, and as they cut away at the rocks they flow down, over time they cause themselves to retreat upstream. A waterfall that does this is known as a recessional cataract. Dry Falls is the most spectacular example of a recessional cataract you'll ever see, but these are features you can find throughout the Scablands. In a state without the Grand Coulee, Frenchman and Potholes Coulee along the Columbia, just north of the Interstate 90 Bridge at Vantage, would probably be hailed as scenic wonders, and the trails that lead along the floor of these coulees are still some of the best places to get a sense of the scale of the forces that formed them. At Palouse Falls, you can see a recessional cataract that still has water flowing in it, though the relatively puny Palouse River mainly underlines just how much more impressive the waters of the Missoula floods must have been to carve the oversized canyon through which today's river runs. Recessional cataracts are the most spectacular products of the Missoula floods, but they're far from the only calling cards left by the raging waters. I'd quickly lose my listening audience if I tried to describe every type of feature visible in the channeled scablands, but there are a few highlights, examples of which you can see across eastern Washington. Unsurprisingly, many of the telltale signs of the floods are the result of erosion, as strong currents blasted bedrock and ripped up even slightly loose objects. Chaotic currents could form strong vortexes known as colks that left behind nearly circular potholes where they drilled into the bedrock. If you follow my advice from earlier and visit the Drumheller channels, keep an eye out for potholes there, since they're especially common in the area between Moses Lake and Othello. In other places, basalt, which cools from lava in the form of tall columns that could easily be ripped apart by flood currents, has been eroded into mesas or pillars. A classic, and to the Cayuse people, culturally very important, example is the pair of monoliths just south of the Tri-Cities known as the Twin Sisters. But the waters didn't just destroy everything they touched. They also transported rocks and sediments from as far away as Montana that were sometimes left behind when the floods waned. The same way that a river can deposit sand in areas where its current decreases, the Missoula floods left behind deposits of gravel. In principle, these gravel bars are similar to the sandbars familiar to anyone who's ever waded or rafted a river, just to return to the theme that unites all Missoula flood sites on an enormous scale. As water continued to flow over these bars, it sometimes left behind giant ripple marks, a lot like the ones from Camas Prairie in Montana. The best place to see these in Washington is from an overlook in the town of Trinidad, just south of Wenatchee, which looks out over the hill-sized ripples of West Bar across the Columbia. While underwater currents are responsible for much of what we see today in the Scablands, the surface of the water played its part as well. Fragments of glaciers in what are now Montana, Idaho, and Washington would have formed icebergs that floated along with the floods. These glaciers would have contained chunks of rock, many very small, but some enormous. 
As the ice melted, the rocks would have been dumped by the icebergs into the floodwaters, where they would quickly settle at the bottom. When the waters finally receded, the rocks, known as erratics, were left behind. Erratics are especially common in the hills between Yakima and the Tri-Cities. Why are there so many here? The answer, it seems, is related to the natural valve that marks the southern point of the Scablands. Walula Gap, just below the confluence of the Walla Walla and Columbia Rivers, is one of the Columbia's major choke points. Presided over by the spires of the Twin Sisters, it's a short but steep-walled canyon that would have provided the first serious stumbling block to the Missoula floods. Only so much water can pass through such a narrow space at any given time, meaning that the gap would have formed what's known as a hydrological dam, causing the floods to back up to form a temporary lake called Lake Lewis. Even by the standards of the glacial lakes we've encountered so far in these episodes, Lake Lewis was very short-lived, lasting only as long as it took the floodwaters to drain through the gap, probably just days to weeks. But it was large, stretching north to Ephrata and to Yakima and Walla Walla in the west and east. It was along the shores of this lake that the icebergs carrying future erratics would collect in the relatively calm waters and melt, dumping their loads as they did so. Just as in Lake Missoula, strand lines marking the ancient lakeshores formed and can still be seen in places. In the depths, rhythmites were deposited. In one place, 62 rhythmites have been counted, giving us a minimum estimate of the number of Missoula floods. Downstream of Wallula Gap, the floods would continue to leave indelible marks on the landscape, particularly in Oregon's Columbia River Gorge and Willamette Valley. Perhaps more than anywhere else in the region, these Oregonian sites show that the floods are not just a geological curiosity, but had, and continue to have, impacts on humans, including geologists, of course, but also on the tribes whose ancestors experienced the floods firsthand. On explorers, on emigrants, on farmers, on engineers, even on brewers and vintners. joining me on the second leg of this voyage down the haunted waters. If you've enjoyed the first two episodes in the series, please join me for part three as we head into Oregon to explore the human element of the Missoula floods. And of course, please also join me in trying to share these stories with as many people as possible. Word of mouth is the most effective way to do this, so please share widely. But rating, reviewing, liking, and subscribing to Voyages on the podcatcher of your choice really helps as well. Once we finish up this series on the third Thursday of the month, I'll release the accompanying blog post on our website, voyagepod.wordpress.com, for those of you interested in diving deeper into the ghostly waters of the ancient Northwest. You'll also be able to learn more about the music featured in each episode. In the meantime, you can head there to learn about any of our previous destinations, or to leave me a comment, ask me a question, or suggest an episode topic, which you can also do via email at voyagepod at gmail.com. And if you can't wait for the post to learn more about where to see some of the features discussed today, I'll once again strongly recommend the site for the Ice Age Floods Institute, which, among other things, hosts the most thorough map of flood-related features in the Northwest. Thanks again for traveling with me through some of Washington's most spectacular, yet bizarrely overlooked, scenery, 
and I hope you'll join me for all the voyages to come. <laughs>